Father, thank you so much for being here with us. I pray that uh, as we study this great subject, the study of you, that um, you would give us insight into who you are. This is not just an academic exercise to find out about you as far as the facts go, but to get to know you as a person. I pray that it would transform all of our lives as we do this study in Christ's name. Amen. Um, before I get started here, let me um, put in just... I mentioned this last week, all right, and um, I talked to Dr. Fisher from Moody um, Bible Institute. If you would want to, this is optional, it's up to you, but there are some people that need like CEU credits for teaching and things like that. You can take this course and the next one's for continuing education unit credit, all right. This is from Moody Bible Institute. And uh, basically what it would be is you'll get a, doctrine of, or a certificate of doctrinal studies from Mooney Bible Institute if you go through the entire two-year course program. Um, it's a fully accredited thing, so you can take these CEUs anywhere you go. Um, they're, they're official. The cost is $49 per course. And since we have 10 courses, the total cost is going to be you know, about $250 for the two-year program if you want to do that. This is purely optional. Um, requirements are easy. You attend the class and you take a test at the end, and the only way you flunk it is you got to pay me real money. All right, that's the only way you're going to flunk a test that I give you. You got to pay for it. That's a joke. Everybody's supposed to laugh on that one. But yeah, you don't. It's just uh, for your own benefit to make sure that you've uh, see how well you've uh, learned the information. Um, this again, this is totally optional. Um, you're going to have two tracks in at the first track, and you'll get a certificate after this first track. Um, it's going to cover the doctrine of God, Christ, Holy Spirit, Bible. And we're going to do a Bible studies method to show you how you take what we learn in the doctrine of the Bible and how you can study the Bible on your own. You can pick any book of the Bible, and you will have the two tools and the ability to understand it, just like Pastor Jim and Dan Sams does. All right? You'll be able to figure it out. And the second track, we're going to cover the last five doctrines, uh, Sin of Man, Salvation Church, Satan, Demons, Angels, and Eschatology, Doctrine of End Things. But if you take all ten of these, you will get a Certificate of Doctrinal Studies from Moody Bible Institute. And if you want to do that, just see me after class and I'll get your interest in it. And I'll have a, probably next week, um, I'll have the uh, stuff to sign up if you want to do that. All right? Again, this is totally optional. It's up to you if you want to do this or not. So having said that, let's go to how do you view God? Probably your view of God is going to do more to shape your spiritual life and your, your, the way you live life than anything else. Um, if you have a very low view of God, you're going to have a very tough time in life. If you have a high view of God... The things that come along that cause us trouble and trials and things like that isn't going to affect you nearly as much. And also, here's a thing to understand. What, if, if you think about it, what is idolatry? If you talk about idolatry, what is that? How do you define idolatry? Putting things before God. That's a, that's a good definition. What's another possible way to look at that? Um, it's interesting, uh, how many people remember the story of uh, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt? Remember, they came out of Egypt, went across the Red Sea, went to Mount Sinai, um, was there on top of the mountain, and uh, 
received the ten, that's when Moses received the Ten Commandments up there. And uh, what was the Israelites doing down in the camp while Moses was up on the mountain? Anybody remember? Yeah, what did they make? And what did Aaron tell them? Remember what he told them? Don't do it. No. Aaron went along with them. In the beginning, he was reluctant, but he was pressured into doing it. And after the golden calf was made, what did they say? This is the God that took you out of Egypt. Now, did they have the right God? Yeah, they did. But how did they worship him? With a molten image. They put God into a molten image. And what's the first commandment? First and second, you'll have no other gods before me and you won't make a graven image. The first and second commandments basically says you need to get the right God and you need to worship him the right way. And if you mess up either one of those, you're an idolater. You're an idolater. You need to worship God not only in truth, but in spirit as well. We're going to read, we're going to read that here in a few minutes. The woman at the well in Samaria. The problem with the children of Israel is they had the right God. They, that, that bull that, that Aaron made represented the God that took them out of Egypt. That threw the gold. I mean, they're not going to worship a false God. They just got done going through the Red Sea and watching God destroy the entire Egyptian army. So they had the right God, but they decided, I'm going to worship him my way, in a way that I can relate to. And that was the problem with Cain, right? When I was growing up, I always thought Cain you know, was the poor guy that just guessed wrong. You know, God wanted, a, God wanted them to come and bring an offering. So Abel, you know, since he was a shepherd, what would he bring? Well, I'll bring a sheep. I'll bring a, something there like that. Uh, Cain was a tiller of the field. He was an agriculturist. So he said, well, I'll bring some grain, some of the best grain I have, some of the best produce. And when he brought, when, of course, when they brought their gifts to God, God accepted Abel's and rejected Cain's. And I always thought, you know, well, Cain, poor guy, you know, he, he tried to do the best God told him to do and he didn't know what God wanted and he was disappointed. And If you read the story, though, that's not really what happened. Because what did Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve know? What do you think they knew? They knew what God wanted. And you can understand that if you look at the conversation that God has with Cain. He says, if you do right, won't your gift also be accepted? The implication here, if you do right, would imply what? He knew what was right. But Cain said, I'm going to bring God what I think God will take. And folks, we do that every Sunday, every day of our lives. We sometimes come to God and we say, you know, this is good enough for him. I'm going to, I'm going to give him what I think he wants. And that's not the way you worship God. You need, we need to have a proper view of God so we know how to worship God, the right God, and how to worship him the right way because only then will we not be an idolater so let's look at this topic what about your view of God your view of God is going to affect every aspect every area of your life how you view life having a proper view of God is necessary if you are to be, avoid becoming idolaters now technically let's stop and think about this let's say you knew everything in the Bible you were a theologian of theologians and you knew everything in the Bible all the information there was about God would you have a totally accurate view of God then? no, no. no. why? You're finite. He's infinite. that's right God is infinite we're finite 
So it's not that we're saying we're going to get to a point where everything we know about God is accurate. Because we can't in this life because there's going to be some mysteries about God. We will never sort out this side of eternity. And we may not sort out in eternity. Not that they may not even be important to us then. But God is an infinite being. So there's a sense in which all of us are never going to fully, 100% completely know everything there is to know about God. But what can we do? We can start in the right direction, can't we? And where we learn about God and learn some things about God, we can alter our view of Him to be in line with what the Scripture says. And that's what spiritual growth is. That's what growing in God is. Growing in your knowledge of God. It's not that we're going to get out of the gate and have every single possible piece of our theology accurate because there's some things about God that, quite honestly, we can never probably understand. We're going to talk about some of those things in the weeks ahead. Theodicy, why did God allow evil? I mean, we can come up with some ideas, but do we really know every implication of why God did that? No. And some things we have to accept by faith. Some things we have to say, well, God has told us this, and I believe it, and I don't understand it, but you know, God, I'll take your word for it on this one. I'll believe what you said. I'll believe what you say. But knowing God should be a pursuit of our life because we don't want to be a gross idolatry. We don't want to get the right God and worship Him the wrong way, nor do we want to get the right God and worship Him the wrong way. We don't want to get to the point where we don't worship any God at all, but what we want to do is worship God, and it says in John 4.23, in spirit and in truth. To worship God in spirit and in truth. The spirit there is not Holy Spirit. I don't think that's what uh, Christ was talking to the woman at the well on. He's talking about your spirit. Do you want to come to church, or do you just do it because that's the thing you do every Sunday morning? Does God want you to come to church because that's what you're told to do, what you have to do? Or somehow you think that, well, if I go to church, uh, God won't be quite as mad at me if I don't. God wants your heart. That's one of the important things to understand. God wants our heart. God wants us to love Him because we love Him. He wants us to do things because we want to, not because there's some sense of obligation, or if we don't do it, there's a thunderbolt with our name on it. It's coming our way. God wants us to love Him because we want to love Him. And the thing He's telling the woman at the well, and by the way, to understand that whole topic, you need to understand where she's coming from. She's a Samaritan. Samaritans were half-breeds. They weren't allowed to go to the temple. They were excluded from Jewish life. The Jews hated them because they were part Jew and part Gentile. And so what the Samaritans did is they came up with their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And if you go there today, by the way, to Syria, you can go to Mount Gerizim and they're still making animal sacrifices right there. And they have a Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that they use. Uh, they substitute Mount Gerizim for Mount Moriah, where um, God took uh, Abraham, remember, to sacrifice his son. They, sacri they switched the names to make it sound like they have the right mountain. But other than that, they have the first five books of Moses. They... They worship today in Samaria. You can go there today and find out how they do it. And the woman is asking, well, Christ, you're a prophet. Where do we worship? Do we worship in this mountain, i.e. Gerizim, or do we worship down in Jerusalem? And Christ answered him in the short form, or answered her in the short was, well, you do not know what you worship. We do. What's he telling her? You're wrong. We're right. <laughs> 
You should worship in Jerusalem. That's where God called Israel to worship. That was the location of the temple. That's the truth component. But what did the Samaritans have that the Israelites didn't have? They had more of the spirit component. They worshiped God with their spirit. What Christ is saying here is if you're going to worship God the right way, you need to worship Him not only with the right spirit, but the right way. Both of those need to be there. And one of the problems that we have a lot of times in churches is we're so busy trying to get the right way down that our spirit is not there. It becomes a drudge. Oh, I've got to go to church and listen to some guy rant and rave for 40 minutes and I'd rather be somewhere else. And it, That's the wrong spirit. God wants us our, to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And listen, when you, became, when you learn to know who God is for what He is and you fall in love with Him, things start falling into line in your life when it comes to worship. You're going to start doing things because you want to, not because you have to. It's like my relationship with my wife. I love her. And because I love her, I don't need rules at home to tell me, now don't hit your wife. Don't slap your wife. Don't punch her. I don't need that. Why? Because I love her. I would never want to do anything to hurt her. And when you come to love God, you're not going to need a rule book telling you what you should and shouldn't do because you're going to want to please Him. It's going to be a desire of your heart. And you need to get a right view of God so that you understand who He is and worship Him in spirit and in truth. Your view of God is going to affect the way you pray. That's an interesting thing. What, if, if I were to ask you what prayer is, all right, what are some of the definitions you would come up with for prayer? Why should you pray? Pardon? To talk to God. To praise God. Find out what's on God's heart. You're all, you're all giving the right answers. See, see, what most people think when they think of prayer is, how can I get God to do what I want Him to do? Right? How can I get God on my page? Folks, prayer is not at all about you getting God on your page. Prayer is all about you getting on His page. Prayer is all about trying to find out what His desires are and lining yourself up with His desires. Prayer is not a laundry list where you go and you have all of these things that you want God to do for you. Not like sitting on Santa's lap. No, it's not sitting on Santa's lap. I want this for Christmas and I want that for Christmas. Prayer is to align yourself up with God. And when you truly love God and you, you love Him with all your heart, you're going to want what He wants, aren't you? You're going to desire what He desires. You're going to want to see things the way He sees things. And that's going to shape the way you pray. No longer is God going to be this, this being out there to manipulate and, and talk into giving you what you want. Rather, He's going to be someone you just want to spend time with and get to know. Is it okay to ask God for things? Of course it is. But as you grow in your relationship with the Lord, what kind of things are you going to be asking Him for? The things He wants you to have, right? You're going to be asking for the things that you know He wants you to have. And the way you pray depends almost entirely on your view on God. If you, if you see God, for example, as distant, and I remember growing up this way, you know, God was just being way out there on a throne, and uh, it was really hard to get His attention, it was really hard to approach Him. You're going to pray a whole different way than if you see God as someone who wants to have a relationship with you much worse than you want to have a relationship with Him, who desires 
that you know him and wants to be with you, you're going you're gonna to have a whole different way of praying. And instead of going to God with a list of things all the time, you're going to want to go to God and just say, God, I don't want anything today. All I want to do is just talk to you and find out, how can I be on your page? How can I, I remember, I started doing this a few years ago on the way to work. I'll say, Lord, how can I work off your page today? How can I be on your, your page? What, what is it that you want me to do today? Not what do I want you to do. <laughs> How can I how can I be how can I have your heart? I don't want anything from you, Father, but for you to forgive my sins. And and give grant me wisdom to know what it is you would have me to do. It changes the whole way you pray. And it will it will take your prayer life to a whole different level if you learn to do that. Your view of God is going to affect the way you view the trials in your life, right? If you see God as sovereign, when you have a trial, what, what's your response? Gee, I wonder what God's going to do. This is going to be interesting to find this out. However, if God is somehow disconnected or, or somehow doesn't quite know what's going on, or one of the theologies that we're going to talk about in a few weeks called uh, openness of God, that's a new thing hitting the evangelical scene. Openness of God says God really doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. He's sort of working it out as he goes along. He is not an infallibly omniscient being. Um, he doesn't know future events because they haven't happened yet. Now, if you've got a view of God that, that's that, what's going to happen when you face a trial? I wonder if God knows what he's doing. What's going to happen? Boy, God's not in charge. And it's going to affect, uh, I mean, it's going to give you some real cause for distress. But if you, if, you, if you view God as sovereign, as someone who loves you and has a plan for you, and as Romans 8.28 says, all things are going to work together for your good, then when you face a trial in life, it's just like, gee, I wonder what I'm going to learn now. This is cool. Let's see what God's going to do. This happened in my life in 1987. Um, my wife um, worked at Lorraine Community Hospital. She was a phlebotomist, drew blood for a living. And uh, she called herself a vampire because she'd be the one going around taking your blood out. And uh, she had a grand mal seizure. I'd never seen one of those before in my life. Scared the daylights out of me. She went into intensive care for 21 days. And they didn't know whether she would live or die. I mean, for all I knew, she had a brain tumor and she'd be dead. And it's really interesting because I look back at that time. I don't ever, I mean, I can honestly say this. I don't really remember praying that God would heal her or whatever. I don't even remember that. What I remember is saying, you know, Lord, help us to learn whatever it is that you want to teach us here. Whatever that may be. Um, and I remember listening to a sermon by Dr. Vance Havner many years ago when his wife died. Um, he said, if God's not good enough for a time like this, then he's just not good enough. Um, I don't remember questioning God. I really don't. Um, don't ask, you know, I'm not trying to set myself up on a pedestal. It's just that it's really interesting that God had worked in my heart and just uh, gave me a piece about this thing. And you know what? It, it's done wonders for our marriage, for us, for our relationship. And if we had to do it all over again, we'd do it again. If we get a time capsule and God says, you can go back and avoid that trial, we say, no, we're going to go through it again. Because God had a purpose and a reason. But having a view of God will give you that. When you go through trials of life, you won't be knocked down because you'll know that God has a plan and a purpose and you can rest assured in that 
it's going to affect the way you view history, right? You look around in the world, what do you see? Chaos, right? Ahmadinejad is running amok. Kim Il-jung doesn't know what's going on. I mean, if you didn't know God, I mean, I don't know how the average pagan handles it out there, do you? I mean, you look at the average pagan, how do they deal with it? Well, I guess they, you know, drink themselves or in oblivion or take drugs or lose themselves in their toys or something. I don't know. But, I mean, it's almost any, any sane person would be driven bananas unless you knew that nothing is going to happen without God's permission. Nothing. I remember back when I, in this church, uh, back in 92, I remember going out to my car and there was a flyer on my, um, you know, underneath the windshield wiper that said, God lost the election. I remember, I still have that flyer at home somewhere. That's when Bill Clinton was elected. And the flyer said, God lost the election. I'm thinking, what do you mean God lost an election? I didn't know he was up for office. How did God lose an election? Well, what the problem was there is people said, well, if we don't, if Bill Clinton is elected, obviously God's going to lose the election. Folks, you've got to understand what it says back in Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar figured this out. He said, God is sovereign over all kings and he sets over men the basest of men. Who's in charge of all the kings and all the leaders and everything of history? God is. And if horror of horrors, Hillary is elected president, guess what? God did not lose the election. God is sovereign. You don't need to get upset. You don't need to reach for the antacid tablets. God's in charge. And if you understand that God is in charge, then you know that whatever happens in this world, whatever event happens, whatever catastrophe happens, God has allowed that for a purpose. Now, we're going to talk about this later. It does not mean God creates evil. It doesn't mean God does evil, but God allows evil things to happen for his purposes. And we're going to talk about that, so hold that thought. We'll get there. But God is in charge. It's going to affect the way you view yourself. All right? One of the great, uh, and I should have looked this verse up. Somebody could probably do that. One of the great um, things that God told Israel, he said, you know, one of your problems, Israel, is that you think I'm like you. And I'm not at all like you. One of our problems today is we create God in our own image. We make God like us. We try to see God the way we want to see Him, or way we want to view Him. And you see this on TV, you know, where some people come, somebody comes up and says, "Well, you know, my God would not yada 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 whatever." All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Your view of God, as far in your own personal opinion, is totally irrelevant to who God is. It's what God says He is that matters. I remember listening to a debate between uh, Clark Pinnock, who you should not read, and Erwin Lutzer on the eternality of hell. Is hell forever? Do people actually go there and suffer forever? Now, what does the Bible say? Yes. All right. So, argument's done, right? The Bible says it is. Argument's over. It's done. Well, Clark Pinnock comes along and says, well, you know, my God would never send somebody to an eternal chamber of horrors. My God would never do that. And he twists the scripture to fit his view of what he thinks God is. Folks, you can't do that. You can't twist God into being what you want him to be. God is who he is. Your job is to figure out what he's like. And how do you do that? You've got a book that tells you. And you've got a Holy Spirit that instructs you. That's how you figure out who God is. 
You don't figure out who God is by getting a bunch of theologians together and having them come up with a definition of God's character. You ask God. You find out what he says. And what does God say? He says he is going to condemn the lost to an eternity in the lake of fire. And if we like it or not, it's totally irrelevant. That's what God says is going to happen. And we only have one choice. We either believe it or we don't. But once you try to start pigeonholing God into being what you want him to be, you're going to come up with a distortion of God. And you don't want to do that. You want to find out who God is, you find out what he says he is and go along with it. And you may not understand all of that. And quite honestly, you're not supposed to. Why? You're finite. You're a created being. And also we have that, what's that word we used last week? Remember? Noetic. What does that mean? Noetic effect of sin. Remember, what does that mean? Your minds are distorted. As fallen human beings, our minds are distorted. Sin has corrupted the ability, our ability to think clearly. And unless, it is, unless our thinking is controlled by the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit, we're going to come up with the wrong answers. Look at the TV guys. On, you know, look at the talk shows on TV. All the answers they come up with are wrong, right? Teenage pregnancy is a problem, so what is their, what is their solution? Well, we'll just more education or whatever. We'll pass out condoms in fifth grade now. You know, that's their answer. And when somebody comes along and says, well, you know, we should really teach our kids absence. Oh, no, that's religious. We can't do that. We can't go that way. See, humans are going to come up with the wrong answers. Go to God for the answers. You want to find out what God is like? You go to Him. And it's going to shape the way you see yourself. Because one of the problems, and this is something very important to understand too, one of the problems that the Pharisees had in the New Testament was they created a God in their image. All right? What they did is they took the Holy God and they cranked Him down a little bit. And they took themselves and they cranked themselves up to the point where they could see God sort of eye to eye. In fact, many of the rabbis, you can go back and read the rabbinical writings, some of the rabbis said that even in heaven, God often daily disputes with the religious, the religious rabbis over the meaning of the law. In other words, their view was there's this whole rabbi section in heaven that dispute with God over the meaning of the law. Now talk about arrogance. God doesn't owe us anything. God, in fact, it's interesting. God says, you know, if I have a need, I wouldn't talk to you about it. I wouldn't tell you. God is holy. And one of the dangers we have today sometimes is we bring God down, we bring ourselves up, so we can sort of see him a little bit eye to eye. We need to see God not like that, but as holy and ourselves as sinful. And when we come to God in faith, we can see God face to face, but it's because of our forgiveness of sin, not because we've lowered God and raised ourselves up. And we're going to talk about that in the weeks ahead. So let's look at the various ways people view God. By the way, just as an aside, anytime you want to talk about something or ask a question, interrupt. All right? There's a lot of you in here, but that doesn't matter. Well, again, I told you, I'm not getting paid to go through this stuff. <laughs> I'm not getting paid at all. All right? So I, I don't need to get through this. So if you have something you want to talk about or a question or something like that, feel free to stop at any point and ask. All right? Some of you hopefully will do that. Let's look at some of the various ways people view God. Some of the various ways that, that they look at. And, and hopefully, um, as we go through these things, you can relate to some of these. 
All right? And this is not an exhaustive list. It's not like, well, we try to come up with every possible way people could view God. That's not what we did. But I think it falls into these various categories. And let me start out with a story about myself, about how I used to view God. I grew up in a Baptist church, all right? And uh, the kind of Baptist church I grew up in said that only Baptists go to heaven. And not, and not just any Baptist, but GARBC Baptists, all right? So I grew up in the Garbsey Church, all right? Very legalistic, all right? And uh, in, in the Garbsey Church, you're, you're sort of, you know, as a kid, you know, you see God as this, this implacable person out there that no matter what you do, you're always, you didn't do it just right, you know? And the idea is you want to keep God on your side, and so you keep God on your side by obeying all the rules, right? Don't drink, smoke, chew, go with girls who do. Don't attend movies. Don't, 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 don't. And uh, the problem is, no matter what church you went to, there's always a different list of things. You know, there's always something different on there. But that's how I view, viewed God for the majority of my growing up. And I remember in high school, I used to play golf. I used to enjoy going playing golf on the golf team. And, uh, of course, I always wanted to do, you're going to laugh about this, but I'm being honest with you. Um, you want to shoot a good round of golf, right? So I had, I had this picture of God in heaven, all right, watching me play golf. And if I hit a bad shot and said a bad word, he'd make me hit another bad shot just to get back at me. All right? And so the only way I could shoot a good round of golf is to quote scripture and sing spiritual songs all the way while I'm playing golf. Because if I didn't and I got mad because I hit a bad shot, he would be up there with a, I'm going to get him. He's going to put that one in the water next. And I remember in high school playing many rounds of golf with that view of God. The guy was up there just waiting for me to say a bad word or think a bad thought or do something bad. And he was going to get me good. He was, going to, he was vindictive. If golfing ability is, a, is like a, a test of how good you are, I'm a lot of Yeah. But I, that's how I viewed it. You know, and I remember singing many a song going around. Now, I didn't sing it out loud, of course, because everybody would have thought I was a sort of a dork on the team there. You know, you wouldn't want to do that. But, but I remember often just uh, singing, you know, songs all the way through around the golf because I wanted to shoot a good score. Sometimes I did. Most of the time I didn't. So I never got it quite right. I guess I always had somewhere in there there was a bad thought, you know, that messed it up. That's how you got, you know, some people go through life that way. They see God as vindictive, and he's going to get them. And if they don't do the right thing, he's just got a thunderbolt waiting with their name on it, and they're going to get smoked. They just know it. Yeah. It was reinforced by pastors and, you know, your, your Sunday school teachers. They had a distorted view of God, and it sort of transferred down to you, all right? And it wasn't until I, till many years later that I finally got over that. But that was drilled into me. So let's look at how people view God. Some people see him, Steve already said, as Santa Claus. God's a Santa Claus, right? He's up there, he's got a big white beard. And what you do is you go to God with all your gimmies. Alright? One of my favorite movies for Christmas is Santa Claus 2. I love that show. Remember? Remember when the evil Santa Claus comes and wants to give all the kids coal? And the elf says, look, you know, at Christmas time we always cut the kids a little slack, you know. We always, 
You know, I said, well, this is Tommy. You know, he wiped his nose on his sister's uh, sweater. Yuck. You know, he's going to get cold this year. So, you know, Sam, we try to cut the kids a little slack, you know, about this time of year. And that's how we view God. And he, he's a Santa Claus. He's someone that is always going to deliver the bag of goodies. And if you, you don't have to be perfect, right? But you have to be good enough to not get on the naughty list. You don't want to get on God's naughty list. But you see God as a Santa Claus. He's going to cut you slack. He's going to sort of, uh, oh, you know, we're not going to get too serious about the sin thing. You know, doing your best, but, but he's going to give you a little bit of leeway. The problem is here, what you see, is God not, does not become the reward. He becomes the rewarder. People who really buy into this, how do they see God? The guy is the one who gives me things. It could be. Yeah. Now, let's ask a question. Is God the source of everything for us? Yes. Everything we have, everything we touch, every good gift comes from God. But is that why you love Him? How would you like somebody to love you because all you do is give them whatever they want? And as long as you keep giving them what they want, they love you. But if you don't, Oh, yes, sir. I'm sorry. A deep based relationship? Yeah. Wouldn't that be similar? A deep based? Deed. I'm sorry. <laughs> My hearing is going. Uh, deed based relationship. Yes. You see, God. Um, the idea here is you want to stay on God's good side by doing good little deeds, you know. You want, and it doesn't mean that you can't do a bad deed. You just can't be too bad. And, of course, if you do a bad deed, what do you have to do? Yeah, a few good ones to make it up. You know, you don't want to get on God's naughty list. All right? And what, you, what God becomes now is this being out there in the universe that you need to manipulate to give you what you want. And who runs the relationship in that respect? You do, Right? The relationship is based on what you want from God. And if God gets too far out of line and doesn't give you what you want, you become disillusioned. Folks, God does not exist to meet your needs. You understand that? God did not create you so that he could meet all your needs and make you happy necessarily. Now, is he going to make you happy in eternity? Of course he is. But you can't approach God on a selfish kind of thing where you're saying, well, God exists to make, meet my needs, to fulfill my life, to make me happy, to do the things I want. That's a distorted view of God. Rather, you need to find out what God wants you to do. And here's the, here's the key that you need to understand. If you can get yourself to the point where you're doing what God has created you to do, what God wants you to do, everything else is going to fall in the line. You're going to be happy. You're going to be content. You're going to have joy. doesn't mean that life's going to be a bed of roses, but you're going to have joy and peace through the trials because God is there. But you don't get that by manipulating God into making Him do what you want Him to do. And here, this is very important. God, you understand, the pursuit of our lives is to find God as the reward, not the rewarder. 
God is the reward. A knowledge of God is the reward, not what God gives us. And if we start focusing on what God gives us, we're going to distort our view of God and make Him into something that He is not, and we're going to become disillusioned in our Christian life. Because God does not exist to do what I want Him to do. That's not why He created me. Some see God as a bureaucrat. Red tape, right? Red tape. And I remember growing up... (coughs) um, being exposed to some of this. Um, I remember in Word of Life Club in our church I came from, the, the key was you need to get up early in the morning and do your devotionals before you go to school. And whoever wrote that ought to have been shot because I don't get up early. Alright? You know, they're talking about getting up at 4 and 5 o'clock in the morning. I don't do that. I'm not a farmer. I'm not going to go out and milk the cows. I'm not going to get up at 4 o'clock. Alright? Um, but we were taught that there are methodologies, there are certain things you do. This is how you work the system. If you work the system right, some people say, if I just work the system with God right, I'm going to get what I want. If I do my devotionals every day, and if I do them at, and if I pray at morning, noon, and night, that's the other thing I was told, you know, like Daniel, you know, he prayed in the morning, in the evening, and at night, in the morning, afternoon, and night, and you need to pray morning, noon, and night. And you need to do it this way, and, and here's the system. And if you do it these ways, then God's going to bless you. He's going to make you happy. It's not a system. That's like saying, that's like me waking up and saying, you know, if I kiss my wife in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, she'll like me. Is she? Well, I hope she does, but I can't reduce it to a methodology, can I? I can't reduce it to a formula. You, God is not this bureaucrat with the red tape saying, um, well, you missed step four, sorry, go back. You ever have that happen? It usually happens when you're standing in line to get your license tags. You're missing a piece of paper. And you've got to go back to square one. You know That's irritating. Um, God is not a bureaucrat in heaven. God, God doesn't have this massive system of red tape. Because what happens is when you see God like this, it's all about the methodology. And you know what? You can go out to the family bookstore today and you can find book after book after book giving you some new methodology for getting in touch with God. If you do this, it'll work. If you do that, it'll work. If you pray like this, it'll work. If you bind the devil, this will work. If you do, that's not what knowing God is all about. It's not about a methodology. It's about a relationship with a person. Alright, and that's what we're going to learn in this course. Here's one of my favorite ones. They view him as a drill sergeant. Anybody been in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines? You know what? I remember going through basic training and, you know, you're standing there in line, you got one button out of order. Give me 50. You know, some people see God like that. You know, God, God is there. He's, he's a stern drill sergeant. You do this and you do this and you do this. And if you don't, you're going to have to do KP for a month or whatever it is. God, God is someone that you can't make happy. You don't think of him as smiling. This is interesting. As I was growing up, I, I, I viewed God a lot of different ways, but I never viewed him as someone who was happy with me. He was always mad at me. No matter what I did, I was just, you know, a day late or a dollar short. I didn't quite measure up. There's always a button out of place. There's a, and quite honestly, folks, when it comes to the infinitely holy God, is any of us ever going to be able to stand in front of Him with everything right? No. <laughs> it isn't going to work that way. But God looks at our intentions, does He not? He looks at us trying to be what we need to be. He looks at us, he looks at our effort. And you know what? It wasn't until just a few years ago that I started seeing God as someone who could actually smile. 
about me. And I remember going to work and uh, praying sometimes on the way to work, God, you know, when my name, if it ever comes up around the throne, I hope it brings a smile and not a frown to your face because of the way I live. It's a relationship. It's not, he's not an implacable drill sergeant that no matter what you do, you're messing it up. You're not there. You didn't do it right. He cares. God cares about us and he wants a relationship with us. He loves us. And it doesn't mean that there are things that we should and should not do, right? It doesn't mean there are disciplines that we should not do in our lives. But those disciplines should not be driven by fear, but by love. We love Him. We want to do that. We want to honor Him. By the way, the emphasis here is on rules and regulations. Boy, I'll tell you, I had, I've had lists all my life. And the thing is, no matter where you go, there's always a different list, right? You can even one... In my when I, my backup, I, my background, you know, I grew up in the you know JRBC Baptist, and I could go to one church and bowling is okay. I go to the next church is an ungodly thing to do. Depending on what church you're going to, so the key is to find out what their list is, so you make God happy, folks. That's not what God. Our relationship with God is not based on a set of rules and regulations. It's set on a relationship, and when we come to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The rules and the regulations are unnecessary because we love him. Isn't that what he told the lawyer? The lawyer, you know, he asked the lawyer, what is, you know, what is the greatest commandment? The commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that, what happens? Everything else falls in the line. If I love my wife so much that I'd be willing to die for her, I don't need rules and regulations to tell me how to treat her because I'm going to treat her right. I'm going to want to. It's about a relationship. It's not about rules and regulations and rituals. Some people view, view God as grandpa, right? I remember my grandfather a little bit when I was growing up. He died when I was about six years old. But I remember him. And what I remember about Bumpy, I called him Bumpy. He called me Pie. Don't ask me where those names come from. I asked my mom one time, where did I ever come up calling him Bumpy? And she said, well, when you were little, little, you, you called him Bumpa, Bumpa or whatever. And it turned into Bumpy. But I remember Bumpy. And, um, you know, he was always, he was just nice to be around. My grandmother was a little bit, a little bit uh, crusty. But Grandpa, oh boy, he'd just spoil us kids. He'd spoil us kids. And I remember one time, they lived above our house. We had a house in Kipton and there was, a, there was an apartment upstairs. And I would go upstairs and... Boy, I just had a lot of time, fun times with my grandfather. And I remember one time he was up there and he said a bad word in front of me. And my grandmother jumped all over him and just said, Don't you ever talk like that in front of your grandchild. He's just laughing, you know. But he was just a warm, fuzzy, you know. He, he, you couldn't make him mad, you know. And some people see God like that as this warm, fuzzy grandfather that, uh, Oh, your parents are giving you a hard time. Well, don't worry, you know about that you know I'll let you misbehave a little bit and get away with some things that maybe mom and dad wouldn't let you do and we see God as this grandfather in heaven you know he lets you like here stay up late bend the rules never gets too tough on you right that's what mom and dad do they're the ones that are the disciplinarians but grandpa he lets you get away with stuff you know because he remembers what your parents were like when they were growing up and he lets you get away with things and what you see people have here is they see God as a, a softy. You know, he's not really serious. 
So when you start, when you, when you, hit some, when you talk to somebody that has this view of God, you say, you know, well, God, God's a God of wrath. He hates sin. In fact, God hates sin so much that those who are lost are going to spend eternity in a lake of fire outside of his presence. They can't relate to that. They don't understand that. And when you talk to them about how God brings trials in our lives to refine us and to make us more like him, they don't relate to that. because That's not something grandpa would do. They don't relate to a God that allows trials to form us and to shape us and to make us more like him. And we talk about justice. They don't like that. They, 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 these people here, they emphasize God's love. It's all love, love, love. And I, I like the story that Vance Havner said one time about a pastor who was a hellfire and brimstone guy. You know, I spoke about hellfire, brimstone, damnation. And the deacon board got together and said, you know, we're sort of a little tired about this hellfire and brimstone. We'd like you to talk about love. We'd like to get more on the love side instead of the wrath side. So pastor did that first week he got up and he preached a sermon on love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Next week he came along and said, uh, preached the second part, said, love thy neighbor as thyself. Third week he said, came along and said, husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And after the service, the deacons got together and said, you know, we enough of this love stuff. Let's go back to the hellfire and brimstone stuff here, you know. None of this love. The point here is that we need to have a balance view of God. Is God just? Absolutely. But God's also love. Is God gracious? Absolutely. But He's a God of wrath. And all of those attributes, we're going to start talking about those in a couple weeks, all those attributes fit together perfectly in God. And you can't emphasize one over another without distorting your view of God. God is, in a sense, a grandfather who loves us, but He's also a just God. He's also a holy God. He's also a God of righteousness. And we can't ignore those aspects of God. Some people see God as an oriental judge. This comes out of the, uh, the story of the woman. Remember Christ was talking to his disciples about prayer. And he said, uh, you have a, and there in Luke, and I forget the exact chapter, but there's two negative, I think it's 18, there's two negative aspects. He teaches prayer in a negative sense. He said, um, Prayer is like you uh, needing something. You knock on your neighbor's house at night and you say, some people have come, give me some bread. And the neighbor says, look, I'm in bed now, don't bother me. And you just keep knocking. And finally he's going to get up and give you the bread. Not because he wants to, right? Because that's the only way he's going to get back to sleep. All right? And then he uses this, this illustration of the Oriental judge where a woman says, avenge me of my adversary. And she comes to this judge, avenge me of my adversary. Now, in those days, the way you would get good judgment, sort of like in America, I'm, I'm joking about that piece, but the more money you had, the more justice you got. And the way you got justice a lot of times in those days is that you bribed the judge. You paid him some of the money. Well, here's a widow woman. What does she have to bribe the judge with? Big goose egg. But what does she do? Every day she's coming back, and every day she says, avenge me of my adversary. And finally, what is that oriental judge going to do? The only way I'm going to get this woman to shut up is to give her her justice. Not that I want to, but I just want her to be left alone. I want to be in peace. And unfortunately, if I would see God like that, we've got to keep nagging him until he does what we want him to do. He really doesn't want to do it. He really doesn't want to make us happy. He really doesn't want to have a relationship with us. He just, you know, he, he really doesn't want to deal with us. But if we just keep nagging, just keep asking, just keep pushing, finally he'll give in. 
That's not the way God is. God is not disinterested and distant. God is not someone that you have to constantly keep nagging and talking to to get him to, to answer your prayer. If God has laid a burden on your heart and a prayer on your heart, keep asking that. But it's not that he doesn't care that he doesn't answer right away. We see sometimes think that you know, we've got to just jawbone God into doing what we want him to do. He really doesn't care about us. But if you keep pushing him, he'll, he'll, he'll give in. He's not like an oriental judge that you have to bribe you know, well, God, if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. <laughs> There's a lot of people that call, call that foxhole conversion, right? God, if you save me here, I'll go and become a priest or whatever. or path. That's what Martin Luther did. When the lightning hit him, he said, well, he didn't pray to God, he prayed to St. Anne. St. Anne, save me and I'll become a monk. And he did. And some people want to make deals with God. Well, God, if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. If you do this for me, I'll go to church for the next Ten weeks or whatever. Bargaining with God. God's not someone to be bargained or bribed. Some people see God as a stern headmaster. Think about back in school. No matter what you did, you know, the teacher was there with that ruler, right? And if you did something wrong, it's whap. Got on the hands. Some of you went to Catholic schools. You know, and the nuns would go by and just whap you on the hand if you didn't do it right. Yes? Oh, you went to Catholic school, yeah. And they're there, you know, they're stern and, you know, if you don't do it right, you're going to go stand in the corner and put a dunce cap on or whatever, things like that. We see God as someone just waiting for us to make a mistake. And the second we make a mistake, it's sort of like my uh, thing with golfing, you know. He just said, wait for you to make a mistake to make the next ball go in the water or the woods or something. Or I'm going to miss that five-inch putt. That's horrible to do that, but it's happened to me before. <laughs> I was going to make a comment. I, I see this as kind of a misunderstanding of the doctrine of sanctification. A lot of times, you know, we, we talk about the need for holiness and things like that. I, I, was in a, um, I was in a church. My youth pastor actually told me that if I was walking across the street and stubbed my toe and said a word of profanity and then got hit by a truck, I would go to hell. Because he said that, um, that the Holy Spirit leaves us every time. Like, we actually lose the Holy Spirit every time that we sin. Which, in my reading of Romans, I get... I have the understanding that the Holy Spirit is there to, to help us in the process of sanctification, not to leave every time we screw up. And that this piece was really a, a huge one for me. Cause I, mean, I, I mean, I was essentially told that you, you literally, like, you lost your salvation um, at, at, at any sense. Um, they wouldn't always say it that way, but I mean, he, I mean that, was, that, that, that illustration was given. Well, one of the things, and we're going to talk about this again through our doctrinal study, there are churches that believe you can lose your salvation. If you sin, you've lost it, you've got to get saved all over again. And the only response I have to that is that heaven is empty. Because there's no way you're going to die without some sin somewhere that you forgot to confess. Alright, and if that's the, the mode you're going to operate under, nobody gets to heaven. Nobody's going to make it there. Unless you die in the moment that you say amen and you fall over dead of a heart attack, you're not going to get to heaven. Alright? But God, God is, some people see God as just waiting for them to mess up and going to bang them on the head. And so anytime any little thing goes wrong in their life, it's like, oh, what did I do? What did I do to offend God? What, what, did I, what did I do wrong? And they don't understand that sometimes, you know, sometimes things happen to you because you live in a fallen world, right? You get sick because everybody gets sick. It's not like God's punishing you. That's not what God is all about. But people see God like He's just waiting for you to mess up so He can come after you. 
Here's one. Some see God as a scorekeeper. What's that? He's got a tally sheet up there. Oh, uh, let's see. He went to a movie. That's uh, five demerits. But he went to church, so that's one positive. And he witnesses somebody. That's another five. So he's plus one right now. And the whole idea is to try and keep a positive score with God. And I, I grew up this way. This is one of the one of the main pictures I had of God. That every time I did something wrong, there was some massive tally sheet in heaven, and God was keeping score with me. And I remember talking to a, uh, an Orthodox Jew that I used to work with, and you know he was very Orthodox. I mean, he, he wouldn't come over to my house because I might serve him a piece of food that had been touched by a knife that touched a piece of pork, and he would be unclean. I said, "You really think God's up in heaven keeping score?" He said, of course he is. That's a bummer way to live, right? God's keeping score. And I don't even see the score sheet. That's the problem. Because you never know whether you're up or down, right? <laughs> but uh, the emphasis here is that God is just, he, he's keeping score. And it's almost like a works-based salvation that somehow, I've got, I've got to keep the positives more than the negatives or I'm in trouble. God's not a scorekeeper. God's not keeping a tally sheet. And by the way, here's the thing to understand. No matter how many good deeds you do, you will never be perfect. Because what is the what is God's standard? Perfection. And anything short of perfection is you didn't make it. <laughs> One sin makes you not perfect. You can never make that up. You can never please God that way. Some see God as an angry father. He's always no, I'm sorry. No, that is not. That is not a, if you're in sin, God will bring trials. If you're a believer and you're living in unrepentant sin, God will bring trials your way. God will chastise you. Hebrews 12 tells you that. God will bring chastisement into your life. If you're living in unrepentant, known, thinking rebellion, He will do that. What this is saying here with the scorekeeper is that people drag that down to the minutiae. It's not like I'm committing some gross, horrible sin. But, you know, I didn't witness to somebody today. That's minus 10. Or, you know, I, I, I saw a movie that I shouldn't have seen. That's minus 20. Or I didn't go to church this Sunday because I was feeling a little bit bad. But I probably could have gone. But that's minus 20 because I've got to be in church every time the doors open. That's what we're talking about here. But if you're living in, if you've got somebody who's living in sin, God will bring trials into their life to, to, to bring them back to him. That's the chastisement of the Lord. He brings that in. Um, we've got to hurry here. Some see God as an angry father. No matter what you do, you know, dad's a stern, I don't know if you ever had a stern dad, but, you know, he's always looking at you with a frown. You never shape up, you never do it right, you're never doing what he wants. You're never quite there. Some see God as this angry father, and they don't see him as a loving, compassionate God at all. Some view God as their servant. You see this in the modern charismatic movement in many cases where all God is is He's this being that you tell Him to go out and do, him, do what you want Him to do. Gloria Copeland said, your guardian angels are wonderful because you can tell them to go get you money or anything and they have to go do it because they're your servant. Folks, God is not your servant. God, is not, God does not exist to, to do what you want Him to do. You exist to fulfill His purpose. And only until you fulfill his purpose will you find your purpose in life. That's the wonderful thing about it. 
When you find out what God has created you to do and do that, that is the most wonderful, exhilarating, joyful thing you could do. It's not a burden. It's, it's a joy. It's why you were created. God is not your servant. He's not there to just do what you want Him to do. And by the way, here's a, something important right at the bottom here. God does not owe you anything but eternal hell. You want to know what God owes you? He owes you that. That's what you, that's what you deserve. But God's grace has allowed you to escape that by salvation. God, that's what God owes you. Some people say, well, if I go to church and I do all this stuff, God owes me a good turn. God's under obligation to anyone. He's under no obligation. And in fact, there's a passage, I can't remember what it was, nowhere near to God's saying, um, I don't owe anybody anything. No one has done me a favor that makes me obligated to them. You cannot place God under obligation. Some see God as their buddy, their pal, their friend. Of course, what do they do? They emphasize His love and care. They don't worry about holiness, righteousness. Probably the uh, best example of this is Mick Dundee. You remember him in uh, Crocodile Dundee where he's out on the back part there and he's talking to Sue there and he says, well, me and God, we're mates. God's not your mate. God's not your buddy. He's not somebody you pal around with in a flippant manner. He's a holy God. does not mean you can't have a relationship with Him, but don't treat Him as your buddy. Don't treat Him as your pal. Don't treat Him as a common person. He's not. Quickly here, in summary. If we thought about it, we could probably come up with more distortions of God. All of us in here probably relate to one, if not two or three of these things. Unfortunately, when you look at it, there's a kernel of truth in all of them, but that kernel of truth is skewed by an overemphasis on one of God's attributes as against another. We emphasize His love at the expense of His wrath. We emphasize mercy at the expense of righteousness. We emphasize grace at the expense of justice. If you're going to understand God, you need to understand all of His attributes in balance with one another. And we're going to talk about that when we talk about the attributes of God. They're all balanced together. And only when you understand God and all of His attributes, we have a balanced view of Him and understand Him for who He really is. And really the pursuit of this course is to get to that point where we understand all of God's attributes and they're balanced with one another so that we see Him for what He really is. And we begin that lifelong pursuit of getting to know God. And listen, no matter how long you're a Christian, you're always going to find out new things about God as you go through your spiritual life that you did not know before. That's called spiritual growth. But we need to start. And that's what we're going to do here in this uh, class. Well, we're out of time. I went five minutes over. Um, did everybody sign the, uh, the sheet and, and mark your attendance down if you're here? Please do that. And um, if you're interested in the Moody stuff, see me for a few minutes after class here. Um, otherwise, we're done. Yeah, we're going to have copies of notes for last week. We have extras. If you need a paper copy, come up and see Dan or somebody. We'll make sure you get those, okay? So we'll have those. Um, so let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to study. I pray that you would take what we've learned and that you would help us to ponder deeply and think about them. And uh, I pray that we would all come to a, to a point where we understand you and all of your attributes and not emphasize one over another, that we might have a proper view of you. Thank you for this day. In Christ's name, amen.